Ready? All right, so a few weeks ago, um, I got to tell you, tell you two stories. One story is uh, the year was 1983. I was a spry three years old. Uh, and my parents had just bought this new sailboat to them. It was new, actually new too. And they were trying to figure out, my mom could correct the story if she was here. She is here, but she's not in here. Um, what to name this boat, because you got to name your sailboat. And so as they would navigate on Lake Oahe back to the marina, there was always one thing that they could trust if the skies were clear, and that was the Big Dipper. So they would follow the Big Dipper back to the marina, because this is 1983 and there wasn't, you know, fancy GPS, blah, blah, blah. So they named it the Big Dipper. So a few weeks ago, Nikki and I were out. Uh, our neighbors had said, hey, we're out of town. If you want to borrow our pontoon, go ahead. So we go to go out on our neighbor's pontoon boat because they live on the lake and we don't. And it's dark. It's dark, dark. And we're trying to navigate back to our, ho- our neighbor's house. And I look up in the sky and what do I see? The Big Dipper is like sitting right over our house. And I'm like, God is calling us home via the Big Dipper. Have you ever used the stars to navigate through the wilderness or through the dark? No? It's a fascinating thing. The problem is, if I try to do that in January, it's not going to be in the same place. (laughs) All right. Enough of that. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about other uh, navigational beacons. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come tonight. We thank you for uh, this evening and this opportunity to be together in this place, to uh, open up your word and to hear uh, the words of Matthew and to uh, ask you to speak to us and help us understand uh, what it is that Matthew is trying to communicate to his audience and what you are trying to communicate to us through the story that Matthew has uh, laid out for us in his gospel. Holy Spirit, just be with us uh, tonight and and be our north star and guide us in the direction that you desire us to go and also speak to us uh, through each other as we are engaged in this community effort. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what I want to do is, you know, kind of like anytime, you watch a new, anytime you're watching a, a show, uh, especially a television show that is, you know, only played once a week, it's like previously on, and then they, they give you like a recap of the things that you missed. Uh, and, and so, you know, last week, previously in the, ch- in the Gospel of Matthew, we lay out uh, the beginning of Jesus' life, the whole genealogy thing. We talked about uh, some of the various characters that exist within the genealogy of Jesus, why Matthew might be referencing them. We started talking about uh, the, virgin, the virgin birth and what was going on within the virgin birth. We talked a little bit about dreams uh, and how God communicates to us. And this introduction of Matthew using this concept of fulfillment and the fulfillment of prophecy. So, at the end of that, Matthew gives us this time signature and uh, it's something I want us to, to continually be aware of. Now, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, now the ESV says wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And then Matthew gives us another now, which tells us we should take a break and uh, discuss or think about what we have just heard and why Matthew is telling us these things. So we get this now and the importance of this birth announcement. Because uh, Jesus is born, okay, sort of, you know, at the end of what we call chapter 1, it's not, there's this implication that Jesus has been born, but then as we start this next section, it's clear that he has been born. He's been born in a particular area, Bethlehem of Judea, and he has been born at a particular time, which is in the days of Herod the king. And so those are some key ingredients that Matthew wants us to be aware of. Now, one thing that is going to shock many of us is when we hear this phrase, in the days of Herod, we, we don't, well, oftentimes we don't know when that is, but when we think about the birth of Jesus, we think that Jesus was born Christmas in what year? Zero. Actually, probably not true. (laughs) Because Herod dies in about 4 BC, and so Jesus was probably actually born before uh, before the end of the, the BC era, and we can get into some of the details of that, but most of us find that completely boring and nauseating. That's just a bit of a head scratcher. So he is born in Bethlehem. Now, We've talked about this before, but the, the, the word Bethlehem is a combination of two Hebrew words, which is Beit and Lechem. So Beit is house and Lechem is bread. So Bethlehem means house of bread, which for many of us, we're like, so what? Except when we think about what happens in communion and Jesus breaks the bread and he's from the house of bread. Wouldn't that make a great Italian restaurant or just bakery? House, the house of bread. So that's going to get more interesting as we go. Matthew introduces us to these uh, individuals that, that the ESV translates as wise men, except the Greek word is actually magi, 
which is uh, more related to magicians. So imagine this, if you want to create some controversy this next Christmas season, find yourself a few Harry Potter figures and put them in your nativity scene. Except for the fact that Jesus has already been born so that the, the people that we say are the wise individuals that have arrived with their gifts don't come to the nativity scene. You're like, yes, they do. No, they don't. Because we know right here that Jesus has been born and he's been alive for a while when these wise characters come around. Now, one thing we have to be aware of is, again, as we talk about this narrative, and somebody pointed out last week that I used this word narrative maybe ad nauseum. And the question was, did you do that on purpose? And the answer is yes. Because I want to continually remind us that this is a narrative story about Jesus' life. Those kids need some Jesus. And this is not some chronological, like historical, um, boring historical account. This is a narrative story about Jesus' life. So, uh, what? Yes. Yes, and we're going to get into that. But, sorry, Russ said, but the wise men come within two years. Uh, but notice, in the nativity scene, Jesus is not a terrible two-toddler running around, <laughs> you know, sticking his finger in the nose of the donkey and the cow. He's a baby. So the wise men have no business at the manger because Jesus isn't there. That's a different conversation for a different time, except for tonight. So anyways, we have these characters that are uh, called wise men, which are actually magi, and they're coming from the east. Now we know that, uh, what was I talking about with those young kids? So rudely interrupted my train of thought. Uh, Matthew gives us these two groups of people, except Herod is one individual. And so we, we are going to see contrasting groups throughout the narrative. And Matthew is doing that very intentionally. So here we have these magi, these magicians, these astrologers who have come from the east, more than likely 900-ish miles from Persia or someplace in Asia, and they're headed to follow this astronomical, astrological thing that they've discovered or seen in the sky. And so if you're an astronomer, you're constantly looking at the stars, and you're seeing, oh my goodness, there is an anomaly that is this brightness and so we should go check it out. So they have to get ready, travel up to 900 miles, and they are on their way to figure out who, who is represented within this natural event that is so shocking to them, which creates this very interesting question for us, and we can have a lengthy discussion around this. What role can nature have in bringing us to Jesus Christ and to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? What role 
does nature play in bringing people to faith in Christ? And we could go, and, and I spent a whole summer, <laughs> which you're like, I don't even know if I want to spend 10 minutes on this, looking at natural theology and the role of natural theology and all of these different conversations and arguments that took place within the history of evangelical theology around how far does natural theology take us. Well, Matthew gives us one of the great natural theology accounts of these people that see this star, they know that something is unique, and they follow this star, and nature is guiding them literally to Jesus Christ. Fascinating thing. So we also know from various historical references that there was a long history that was circulating certainly throughout that region of the world, if not the entire world, that there would be a star that would represent the king of the Jews being born. So this is common knowledge throughout, uh, some contend throughout the world. The Magi more than likely are not Jewish. They are not followers of Yahweh. And this is what I love about this, is John and I had this great interchange uh, because he wants to make the case that, that maybe they were Jews in exile and they'd been, you know, they had encountered Yahweh or they were Jews that were in exile living in a different place and so they were coming to find their king. They were coming from their place of exile back to, uh, back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, back to Israel because they knew that God was going to signal, hey, the king of the Jews is here. I'm not in that camp, nor are most of the commentators that I've read. Um, they represent non-Jewish people who seek out Christ and have a conversion experience that completely changes their life. Now again, as we talk about the narrative arc of Matthew, Matthew is trying to show us that the people that were supposed to get it, the Jews, oftentimes don't get it. And the people that weren't supposed to get it, the Gentiles, somehow they get it. And so that, if that is the narrative arc that we're talking about, having the Magi be pagan, meaning non-Jew, really helps. <laughs> and also creates this nice foil between the Magi and the king and Herod, who is Herod, and how that is all going to come out. So they go, and they're like, this is it, big sign, here we go. So they head out, they go all this way to find Jesus, which begs the question, how far have we gone to find Jesus? And if you're me, it's, well, it's maybe eight miles, I think is how far I live from here. Not funny, Nick? So-so, okay. So, they get to Herod, they've come to worship the king of the Jews. Well, when you go to the sitting king and you say, I'm here to worship the actual king of the Jews, not a great first line. And if you, if you watch any, or if you're familiar with any of like royal lineage and kingship and how the kingship is passed down, maybe you watch particular shows where it's like somebody is born to be the king because they're in the lineage of the king. 
Um, Herod was not supposed to be the king of the Jews because of his lineage. And they say, we're here to, to worship the actual king. Not a great first line. So Herod hears this, and rather than giving him an answer, he summons the key leaders um, of the Jewish people, the chief priests and the scribes, which is going to be, again, a category of character. We don't get specific names, in essence, in many of the places. We get these two groups of people as if they are one group of people. So he asks these wise people, these Jewish wise people, so see that interesting contrast. We have these Gentile wise people uh, coming to worship Jesus, and the Jewish wise people are saying, where is the Christ to be born? And so then they tell him in Bethlehem, and based on this prophecy, the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Herod gathers up the Magi, and, and notice the ESV doesn't really like to use a word that's even close to magician, so we just say wise men, uh, secretly, and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. Notice he does it secretly. Things that are done in secret aren't typically a good thing. A little hint around hearing and seeing what's going on in the narrative. So he says, yeah, go ahead, head to Bethlehem. It's about six miles from here. Uh, search diligently for this child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. These individuals don't know Herod from Adam, and so they, are, they trust him. So they go, and notice what happens. The star goes before them. Again, this like incredible thing happening. The, the star is moving and guiding them uh, to the home of Mary and Joseph. Again, like the one thing you're going to walk away from is, honey, we've got to throw away the wise men or no longer put them out in the nativity scene. Just create like, like stage two of Jesus' life at Christmas time. And you're like, this is toddler, toddler Jesus in a house with Mary and Joseph and the wise men. And you just have to create an additional, that could be a marketing thing, like additional accurate representations of the nativity scene. First of all, they're not white people, and the wise men have no place in the nativity scene. It's not heretical, it's only biblical. So they show up at this house. That's where Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, or infant Jesus, are living. And what happens When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can you imagine? You spent your whole life hearing that at some time there will be a star in the sky. And when you see that star, what what it will represent is that the, the king of the Jews has come to be on earth. So first of all, you see the star and you're like, you think that's it? I think that's it. Is that it? That's it. Let's go find out. Now you've got to travel some eight to 900 miles. I mean, just imagine this. And the whole time it's like, yep, we're on the right, we're on the right direction. We're headed in the right direction. And then you get, you get closer and you meet the king and he's like, yep, six miles more. You're almost there. And then you're like, we made it. 
<laughs> and they are so excited, the amount of joy that exists. It's not just like, and they were relieved that they had arrived at the home of the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. Imagine if every time you, Sunday morning, you get in your vehicle, maybe you walk, no one really walks here, maybe you ride your e-bike, and you get to the parking lot, and you get out, and you shut the door, and you're just like, woo yes, we made it, exceedingly great joy that we are together at church, yes! I mean, if you want to be that way on Wednesday night, full permission. And on Sunday mornings, too. I mean, these people are so excited to encounter Jesus. Are we ever that excited? Are we ever that excited that we would say, describe what we have experienced? An encounter with Christ is exceedingly great joy. And think about how kind of anti, they roll in and they're like, he's two? (laughs) That's it? And yes, they're so excited. And notice in the narrative, they haven't even gone inside. (laughs) They're just excited to finally have arrived. They've been waiting so long to encounter Christ. And again, these people are Gentiles. They, they are not followers of Yahweh to, to most people. And yet they know that there's something so important about who Jesus Christ is that, that literally the The cosmic representation, something has changed in the sky to mark what has happened through the incarnation, and they get it. They get it. And so they go in, they see the child, they see Jesus, they see his mom, and what do they do? They immediately fall down and they worship him. I mean, talk about a moment in time, like their whole life has led up to this point, they encounter Christ in his, in his two-year-old self, and they immediately are overwhelmed, and they worship him. And one of the commentators does, did this thing that I did not see coming in the least. He references the word that they use for fall down and worship, and who does he reference? Mordecai. The fact that Mordecai did not fall down and worship. And I was like, what just happened? So Mordecai is in Esther, which we've been going through on Sunday mornings. (laughs) And now we're talking about Jesus. See that? Amazing. So what do they do? They don't just fall down and worship him. They bring these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And for that reason, most people say, well, there was only three of them. It doesn't have to be three. There could have been more than three. It just happens that they brought three gifts. Maybe they went together on the gold, a few of them, uh, and the frankincense and the myrrh. 
and they just could only afford three different things. Three gifts, they bring them. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we're like, wait, another dream? How many of us this last week were like, so much more in tune, like, you lay your head down at night and you're like, all right, God, I'm ready. <laughs> you wake up and you're like, that was definitely not God. <laughs> that was the tacos. <clears throat> we can't miss this, though. So often we just like, yeah, 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 let's move on. We have these people who live in a far-off land who've heard the stories about the potential for this to happen. They see the star in the sky. These people who seemingly are worshiping the stars. I mean, that's often what astronomers or astrologists during that period of time would have, would have done, would have believed in magic and all of these things. They have, this, they have this understanding. They follow through on this understanding. And what they think they're going to arrive at, they arrive at, and it's Jesus Christ in his toddler form, and they have this encounter, and they immediately change their lives to worship Jesus Christ. And what happens next? The Holy Spirit encounters them in their dream to warn them to go a different way. I mean, how incredible is that? They, they follow this leaning, this yearning that they have to go after God, they respond and God responds back and he saves their lives because if they would have gone back the other way, who knows what all would have happened. Incredible. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. What? And said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Did you catch that? We have a bit of an error or a perceived error because it's not seemingly, we should have gotten, then Herod sends out, you know, if, if we're talking strictly chronologically, anyways, maybe you aren't interested. But we have Joseph having this other dream that he is to rise and take uh, Jesus and Mary to Egypt because they know that Herod is on the lookout. Because Bethlehem, six miles away, Herod sends away the Magi. He's, he's counting, he's like, 
they should probably be back by now. And so when he realizes that they have gone a different way, he immediately sends out this decree. And so God saves them by saying, hey, head to Egypt, which is roughly in the 80-ish miles, depending on where they're going in Egypt. Now, we know that they would have found other Jews in Egypt that would have kept them safe from Herod. But Matthew's interpretation is different. Matthew's interpretation is the reason why they're going to Egypt is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. One of the things that we're going to be looking at throughout is how Jesus becomes, in Matthew's gospel, the true Israel. So that Jesus' life represents many key moments within the life of Israel. In Israel, the Jews are called to live this particular way, and oftentimes they don't respond in the way that they're supposed to. And so Jesus comes in as this fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be. So the Jews go to Egypt. We know that, the whole, like, you know, Pharaoh and let my people go and Charlton Heston and all that business. And then they come out of Egypt and God rescues them. So Jesus goes to Egypt to be safe. And then Jesus is going to come up out of Egypt. Uh, And Matthew's interpretation is so that he would fulfill this prophecy. And Herod desires what? Herod desires so that he could try and wipe out Jesus. Now, oftentimes when we hear this story, we think, oh my word. This is going to be like this huge thing. Um, And we often overinflate the number of kids that would have been in Bethlehem. Um, Not that it makes it any better. But he doesn't go through and kill. This is not like a second Passover where he kills all the firstborn. Um, This is specifically located to uh, the time of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. all right, let's keep, keep going. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. Like, I'm wondering if dreams is kind of a big thing. Like, how many dreams have we had in, that have been very important things uh, for the life of Joseph and other individuals? But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, if we're keeping track, how many times have we heard this phrase, either fulfilling of a prophecy, spoken by the prophet, written by the prophet, keeps coming back? And we're going to hear echoes of that in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is like, so you had heard it said, or so it was written, uh, talking about looking Looking back, looking into the present, and looking forward into the future uh, along the story or the narrative of Jesus. 
One thing that I found absolutely fascinating that I had no idea about, and um, I think it's right here. Yeah, it's right here. So Herod apparently was this notoriously bad person. Um, had like 10 wives, multiple kids. Well, if you are the king and you have 10 wives and the firstborn son is going to inherit the kingship, but you have like 10 firstborn boys, create some challenges, I would think. <laughs> uh, so Craig Blomberg says this. He says, After frequent disputes with Caesar Augustus, the emperor uttered his famous pun that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. <laughs> That's some bold words. So Herod, notoriously bad. Well, if you grow up with Herod as your dad, chances are you probably aren't going to be, um, maybe not be living a big virtuous life. But anyways, they get this, Joseph has this dream that they can return home uh, to Israel. But rather than going back to Bethlehem, they go back to, they go to a new spot. They go where? They go to Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. If somebody asks you, where are you from? What do you say? Like you meet somebody new, like hypothetically speaking, on Sunday morning. You have exceedingly great joy as you come into Timberwood. You shake Bob's hand or whatever, and you're like, somebody comes up to you, and they're like, wow, you're really excited. You're like, well, yeah, because uh, we're about to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. They're like, well, where are you from? And you're going to say? Where you currently live. Okay, interesting. The fascinating thing about that is um, oftentimes, Certain people will, will hedge where they live. You're like, well, I live on the whitefish chain. So you live in Pine River? No, 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 I live on the whitefish chain. Well, it seems like your zip code is Pine River. No, nope, definitely don't live in Pine River. I live on the whitefish chain. Or um, where do you live? Um, I live on... The east side of North Long Lake. So you live in Merrifield. No, no. <laughs> no, I don't live in Merrifield. I live on North Long Lake. Or my favorite is you ask somebody that maybe is visiting, where, where do you live? Well, we, li we live in Minnetonka. Really? You actually live in Minnetonka. I'm like, do you actually live in, like, Hopkins? Well, yeah, technically. So then why did you say you live in Minnetonka? Well, it's close. But it's not the same. Yep, I'm from Edina. Are you from Edina? Well, technically St. Louis Park. <laughs> so are you lying? Well, mm. why is it that we become so attached to particular um, identifications of ourselves. 
In South Dakota, it was always like, are you from East River or are you from West River? And if you're from South Dakota or know anyone from South Dakota, if somebody's from West River, you immediately know things about them. And chances are they have a loaded rifle in the backseat of their vehicle. Because you never know when you're going to need to shoot a coyote that's coming after your sheep or something. I'm sorry. I made chicken noodle soup tonight that was way too salty. And so I am just like so thirsty. So Matthew tells us that Jesus goes with his parents to Nazareth. Well, if he would have gone back to Bethlehem, what do we know about Bethlehem? Two thumbs up, five stars. What? Who else is, you know, it's like, I love telling people, yeah, I'm from Yankton. You know, like the home of Tom Brokaw. They're like, oh, yeah, of course, Tom Brokaw. Who's from Bethlehem? David. The city of David, Bethlehem. So if Jesus is identified as from Bethlehem, he carries all of this social clout. Like he's from, you know, one of those fancy suburbs in the cities. But if he's from Nazareth, ugh, it's like he's from Farmington. Anyone from Farmington? I just picked it. I just picked a southern suburb that's kind of nondescript. (laughs) Tom thinks I'm prejudicial to southern Minnesota. Not, Not at all. Not at all. We have great friends who live in Farmington. Great community. I was just picking a random, obscure, southern suburb that people, no one says they're from Farmington unless they're like really from Farmington. And so as we dissect this whole Nazareth, Nazarene thing, there becomes some interesting conversation because Nazar- to be a Nazarite, okay, if I say, he, he took a Nazarite vow. Who do we immediately think of? Samson, yes! And you're all like, and thank you that we're not doing judges. Um, so Jesus didn't take a Nazarite vow because he doesn't live, you know, right now he's two, and so he's not taking these vows. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily that, that Matthew wants us to believe that he's taking this Nazarite vow. This phrase... Uh, Nazarene or Nazareth represents uh, kind of an ambiguous area or an area that is nondescript that you wouldn't really brag about being from. And again, as we talk through and look at the life of Jesus, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus doesn't come from this place of high prestige with all of this social clout. He comes from a, a lowly position in a nondescript area. Because if Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which we affirm that he was, then at some point you could make the case that he's from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. But in this case, Matthew has the important aspect of his Nazareneness, the fact that he's from Nazareth, because as 
we go throughout the, the rest of the narrative, there was, there was no last name associated with Jesus. As we've already talked about, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. So you would differentiate. Jesus was a common name, and so you would differentiate, and you would say, well, that's Jesus from Nazareth. And so when you say Jesus from Nazareth, you're like, yeah, he's, he's from Nazareth. But as we have often sped through this, we skip over these interesting things because we're like, that isn't really that important, except it's extremely important. Because Matthew is setting up the rest of his narrative in a shapely way to show us Jesus isn't about worldly power and prestige and clout. Just like when we see the Magi coming in, it's not about the position they held or where they're from. It's about what they do when they encounter Christ. And so Jesus comes from this place that is nondescript, not really that, this big thing to be celebrated, which is going to be a theme throughout as we see him encounter people that, that the world, by their standards, is meh. Like, they're not, really, they're not really that important. And so Matthew does this intentionally to show us, I want my listener to pay attention to these little things as we go. All right. Any initial questions before we uh, disperse into our discussion groups? Yes. Would it be comparable, would it be fair to say that the three magi are like the amazing race people? The winners. Um, let me think about that. Let me think about that. I think maybe, except that wasn't the finish line. Maybe when they had arrived, at, they jumped on uh, Mary and Joseph's uh, welcome mat. Shalom. <laughs> All right, so some of you were not here last week. And I know our tendency is to, um, how do I say this? Cheat. Usurp the power of the Holy Spirit. And just follow somebody into a discussion group because you like that person and you want to be in their group. God sees you. So if you were not in a discussion group last week and you want to be in a discussion group this week, please remain seated as everyone else disperses to their discussion groups and I will place you in a discussion group. Okay? You can, or you can just come forward. 